You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Victor, and joining me is the wonderful William Gallagher. I do like the voice you put on that. It feels like we've only been talking moments ago. Nice to be back having a natter. It's it's like we never left. Yeah. Has anything happened in the Apple world or, or are we done really? Do we cover everything? Oh, it's all been said. Okay. Should we go home? Well, nice talking to you. Okay, short Cheers. podcast. All right. Packing up. Nope. In the interim, so so what happened here, listeners, is that we went ahead and recorded a fantastic episode, and it was a great episode, and we had lots of good stuff for you, only to learn that the recording wasn't up to our standards. Can I just we say- We have high, we high do, standards here. We do have high standards, and you regularly meet them, uh, but, you know, I, I, it was me. I totally messed up my end of it. Sorry about that. Yeah. Mortified about I wasn't that. even going to say- yeah. I, I don't need to shame anyone, but we're doing it again. So buckle up, grab a cup of tea. <laughs> let's get started. Cameras. You use a camera all the time, don't you, William? Oh, absolutely. I mean, 20 times today, I got out my iPhone and took photographs of things. It's just what we all do, isn't it? Well, I would have expected you to say that you're the subject usually, not the <laughs> photographer. Uh, in the kind of police lineup way, holding one of those numbers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. You're going to be on the cover of Radio Times one day, aren't you? Well, I am. I've, I've been to the Radio Times covers party. It's a very exclusive uh, annual gathering only for people who have actually been featured on this UK equivalent of TV Guide and those of us who are working on the magazine at the time. But I'm hoping to be invited back as a subject. Yes, one day. I'm sure it will happen soon. I'm positive of it. Nikon, camera maker extraordinaire, announced two new models, the Z6 and the Z7, or Z6 and Z7 for our, uh, for our finger sandwich fellows there. These, this is their, their first full-frame mirrorless camera, and both models have wireless connectivity to iPhone and Mac. Now, why is that a big deal? Why would we need wireless connectivity other than just having fewer wires is a good idea? Well, I'm wondering that because, I mean, we must mention Radio Times. I was very often at uh, cover shoots for that, and it was always – you know, very high-end cameras, but they were always tethered to Max. Uh, I suppose you needed the instant confirmation that you got the shot that you wanted while you had, you know, expensive cast or, or set around. Does that help with that? It does. My thought is, if you're doing one of these shoots, it, it, you don't want to. You want to eliminate as many cables as you can because they're a tripping hazard. You want to eliminate them because if they are tripped over, they'll pull out of the the device, and then you'll lose connectivity and you'll have to reset. And my thought is that there's some liberty of having the Mac or the iPhone that you're previewing on wherever you want as opposed to nearby the camera. So if the photographer and the subject are over in, in one portion of the studio, but the director of the photo shoot happens to be sitting at a table back by the craft services and eating the food, being able to preview whenever convenient is probably more useful, wouldn't you say? Yes, but I've just remembered the number of times uh, stars of various BBC shows would be in costume, uh, on the spot, ready to photograph, and then the entire crew gathered behind a Mac that they couldn't see, going, oh, it's not good, you know. It was just more amusing when they were positioned quite that way. So technology is taking away the fun of a photo shoot again. I suppose it is. But uh, when, when you have a wireless link like this, you, you end up 
have, being subject to the, the rules of physics and the rules of the connection, right? So if you're going to do a wireless link, you can preview quite quickly if you send a low-res preview. If you send the higher resolution version of the image across, then it's going to take a little bit longer. So I, I think the utility here is what you said, that you can preview quite quickly and then move on to the next shot. Though actually that, that raises another concern. I mean, one of the things I thought was good about the tethering was that the photograph was immediately off the camera, immediately stored on the Mac, and I, I think being backed up to external drives and things. I mean, I, what's the difference? It's only saving a few minutes, but sometimes this time is really precious. There's a very famous Radio Times cover with Simon Cowell uh, on it, and I know friends took that photograph. That instead of the full studio day they usually got, they had him for three minutes in between two other meetings. So if they'd lost that in any way, or it wasn't right in any way, um, they would have lost the cover. So... Uh, security and and backups and things suddenly come to mind. How many photographs can you hold on one of these cameras before you have to copy off? That's a really good question. They use a new type of storage media called an XQD card. The XQD card is... um a memory card format primarily developed for flash memory cards, and it's using PCI Express as the data transfer interface, which is blazingly fast, right? PCI Express is the same kind of internal uh, bus that we use in certain computers for Wi-Fi cards and video graphics cards. So that that has a huge benefit in terms of speed of transfer, which is, is one of the limiting factors. Now, it also means that if you can use a faster transfer speed, that you can record pictures quicker too, right? Oh, yeah. The XQD format was first adopted by Nikon into the D4 and D4S and D5. Now we're on D6. Uh, now we're on Z6 and Z7. These new cameras. The cards have a maximum storage capacity projected to be about two terabytes. I don't know that a two terabyte card is available today. Uh, but the read-write speeds, the, they were introduced with 125 megabyte per second, not megabit, but 125 megabyte per second, and. The future series cards were said a couple of years ago as fast as 500 meg and beyond. You could do full HD video. You could shoot sports. You could shoot all these kinds of things because that speed allows it. That's that's, that's really something. Stunning. When cameras were tethered, that quality was fine. It was just going straight down the wire. But when it's on a card and then you're taking the card off, um, I presume there are readers on the Mac that will take that kind of uh, format card. You know, that's a good question. I don't know that there are. I'd, I'd think that because it's a PCI Express bus that if you had one of those external PCI Express devices connected to Thunderbolt, like we use for doing the external graphics cards, that you could probably do it. But I'm not even sure that, that readers such as that exist. Now, just looking here at B&H, who's a, a friend of the show, uh, Sony sells a 128-gig XQD G-Series card for 230 bucks. And it's, like I said, it holds 128 gigabytes. The max and read and write speeds are in the 400 megabyte to 440 megabyte range, which is quite fast. That's much less. Than, I mean, I hadn't thought of a figure and I just, I know photography stuff is very expensive. So that's actually considerably less than I would have imagined for it. That's, you know, you can afford, I mean, it's a business expense. I think that's the term you've used before. Uh, for professional photographers, this is, you know, they're, they're bread and butter. That's right. Cheap. The, now, if you have a 256 gig card, that's uh, $463 okay. for that same kind of 400 megabyte speed. And, you know, that, that sounds very expensive, but if you're shooting professionally, that's an expense. The cost of the cameras is another expense to consider, right? 
the um, the Z7 Z7 features a 45.7 megapixel sensor with 493 focus points and an ISO range from 64 to 25,600. And the body costs $3,400. Or if you throw in the kit lens, it's uh, $4,000. Right. I wonder how many people go for the kit lens when they would have built up a collection themselves. But still, that price isn't... I'm just I'm disappointed in them. 493 focus points. They couldn't make it to 500. Why? Just they just wow. slacked off. Really? <clears throat> Honestly, the the remaining seven weren't necessary. Okay, but for, you say 45.7 megapixels. That's yes. that's quite big, isn't it? That's quite a lot. It's yeah. it's over 45. <laughs> that's true. Point seven. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Now the the Z6 model, the the Z6 model is a little bit less capable, but not by much. So it's 24.5 megapixels. It's uh, ISO from 100 to 51,200. So you have a higher range, but not as much low range. And at 12 frames per second, where the, the Z7 model was, I'm not sure. Let's see here. Uh, no, I can't see. Less. The Z7 can do nine frames per second. And I think the reason for that is that it's uh, it's got nearly double the um, amount of megapixels to capture. So doing nine frames per second versus 12 is still quite capable, capturing that much more information. Yes, in fact, it's impressive when you think of the difference. I'm just, I, th- I wish you'd told me about these the other way around. I would have lusted after the, the Z6, uh, but it's too late now. I want a, a Z7. I don't need it. I just well, want it. The, let me let me help you out with that. I'll make it really easy for you to decide. The Z6 model, the Z6, if you will, costs $1,996 for the body only. And with the kit lens, the same kit lens, by the way, which is a, um, oh dear, it's a uh, 24 millimeter to 70 millimeter F4 kit lens mm-hmm. with the Z6 body is uh, $2,596. So you could uh, almost buy two uh, Z6s for the price of a Z7 and photograph everything in stereo. I like it. Okay. Yeah. Now, the the reason to, to buy the kit lens is because they're using a different mount instead of the old F mount or or kind of, or the the D mounts that were used for the uh, the D series, you know, D seventies, D eighties, D nineties, kind of thing like that. They're they're now using a Z mount, and the Z mount that it's got. They only have a few different lenses available: the kit lens that we've talked about. And then there are a couple of primes, which are the uh, the f one point eight fifty millimeter and the f one point eight thirty five millimeter. Well, I take it back then. Uh, I was assuming you could just carry on using all your old lenses. So who would buy the kit one? But of course, you're going to buy the kit, aren't you? And I like prime lenses, uh, so that, I'm surprised there are only three. But is there a, a real technical difference? Do we know between the mounts, or is this just they want people to buy new lenses? I'm not entirely certain, but I'm I would imagine it has something to do with different focus points all right okay yes i mean that's my guess uh now they have an ftz adapter that allows you to use any f mount lens you've already got so it's not like you have to give up your lens collection you can still use them but um and and you will be able to continue using the autofocus and exposure controls on those lenses using that ftz adapter so Nikon's trying to have it a bit of both ways, right? They have these; they have the, the three lenses available now. They have a roadmap of several new Z-mount lenses for the next couple of years. But for people who've already got lenses they favor, you've got that adapter. Are there alternative uh, manufacturers who do compatible ones for this? 
Uh, Tamron always used to make compatible lenses. Right, that's the name I was trying to remember. Yes. Okay. Yeah, both cameras ship with Wi-Fi and Bluetooth built in. And there's a SnapBridge app that allows the easy wireless transfer to iOS and Android. So instead of needing to connect and transfer video and images, it's just wireless. And like I said, quick transfer of lower res images and slower transfer of full images. Um, we're going to try using this camera with the Apple USB connection kit and see how that works out for large transfers over a wire that way. But these are some impressive cameras. You know, 4K video mode up to 30p, 1080p frame rates at uh, 120p frame rate. There's some good stuff going on here. So are these actually out yet, or is it they're announced as coming soon? Um, well, Adorama and, and B&H Photo, who I mentioned before, are accepting pre-orders. And what we think is, is going to happen is... When are these released? Um, I'm not sure when these exactly ship, but they've been, they've been announced is what happened. Oh, so there's they're, a date. they're going to ship soon, but... Um, there is a date in the middle uh, between the two photographs, September 27. Uh, there you go. Better if you say that. No, no, you say it. Um, I'm trying to look at the photographs. It's weird talking about cameras, isn't it? You're going to want to see what they look like a lot. So I was sneaking a peek for it. And, and I've seen that there is a note next to one of the photographs saying it's due uh, September the 27th uh, for, I think that's the Z7. I imagine it's the same for the Z6, but I don't know. Right. And that's that's... I'm I'm glad these are coming out. These are going to be interesting. We're going to go hands-on with these. We'll find out more about them as soon as we can. That's exciting. Yes. It's funny. I'm so used to thinking photography equals iPhone now, you know, with films, major, major motion pictures being shot on them. You forget about DSLRs. But um, every time recently I've been interviewed on uh, TV in the UK, uh, they've had a DSLR and they've been shooting video through it. So it's nice to see these things. I need to be photographed in 45 megapixels or whatever it was that's what i need that's what the world needs clearly i'd like to move well, on from that okay. well you're getting ready for your close-up <laughs> i i need to be filmed in panorama aerial i need to be filmed in glorious shots from above and let me explain dji maker of drones has launched a mavic 2 pro drone and with a hasselblad camera hasselblad is a legend among photography nerds. They they do they did large format for years. They had digital backs. You could keep your old lenses, keep your old bodies, and convert them to digital. You could do all kinds of beautiful things with a Hasselblad. And if you've ever been in a pro photographer's studio, they may have shot on a Hasselblad. And Hasselblad has done a couple of things over the past few years to keep themselves up to date. They made a, a mod for the Moto Mods a couple of years ago where you could put a Hasselblad back on your Motorola Android phone, which is kind of fun. And here they've partnered with DJI, makers of fine drones, to go ahead and put a Hasselblad camera that's lightweight but has a serious amount of megapixels on it on the drone for aerial shots. Now, that that camera is a 20 megapixel camera, and it has Hasselblad's natural color solution built into it, technology for high color accuracy, as well as 4K 10-bit HDR support for video. And they have apertures in there from f2.8 all the way up to f11, so you get a wide spectrum of lighting conditions that you can film in. What's really cool is that they can stitch photos together so that if you take nine shots, then you get a single large 48 megapixel image. That's interesting. That makes that similar to the... The Z7, except no, with a, a Z7 that has 45 point 
seven megapixels you take one shot from one position if you're taking one of these uh, and stitching them together then in inescapably the drone will have moved even fractionally so there's got to be um uh, a slight distortion in the angles of things i'm wondering whether how how intelligent the stitching is to smooth that out do we have any idea about that not really certain, but I, I think that one of the cool things is that you can get a dolly zoom quick shot that you can reconfect this this effect of a dolly zoom, so the camera can move away wow. and zoom okay. at the same time. So fantastic image stabilization. That's oh okay. Nice. And and both the the Mavic Two Pro and the Mavic Two Pro Zoom are able to capture 4K video at 100 megabit bit rate using the H.265 codec. So this should be fun. This should be quite good. The, the Zoom one is a collapsible kind of thing, and it also has intelligent tools for motion tracking. So you can do uh, extremely cool shots by planning where it's going to go, you know, circle around flying for a single point, course lock, stuff like that. They've also got 10 sensors on it so that you can uh, avoid okay. obstacles. Because that's the big thing, isn't it? They're crashing into other drones in the air, actually. They've, they've also got uh, a, a video transmission system that's working over both 2.4 gigahertz and 5.8 gigahertz bands. So you can, and you can use the different frequencies for uplink and downlink. So you can transmit a 1080p video at a distance of up to eight kilometers. So you can cache the video in the DJI app and edit it and upload it without having to extract footage from the drone itself. Seriously impressive. Oh, wait a minute. I know what will stop that being impressive. What's the t- drone flight time? Is it three minutes long or something? I was waiting for you to ask that. I really was. So we've we've all had sort of toy drones around where you can fly them up, you can fly them down, but after about 20 minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, something like that, yeah. you run out of juice, right? Here, first of all, how fast do you think this thing can go? Uh, it's not just puttering through the air. This thing doesn't just kind of float along, you know, lazily. So it motors 40, along. Uh, I'm thinking 40, of footage I watched. Four. How much? Four. teeth. 44 miles per, miles per hour. Sport mode. And it's quieter and more efficient. They, they have reshaped the propellers to make them noise reducing. I'm trying to work out how many miles per minute that is, because aren't there FCC regulations of how drones have to stay within, uh, obviously, certain heights, but also... I'm hand-waving at this. Keep going. <laughs> Never mind that. It's 44 miles <laughs> per hour, and it allows for a flight time of up to 31 Okay, so uh, up to, I mean, 31 is brilliant. Up to always makes me suspicious. I'm guessing that's not in sport mode. Well, look, look, if if you're in sport mode and pushing it up to its 44 miles per hour, don't expect you're going to get 31 minutes of flight time at it. No, but even if you did, that's... um, so that's uh, 22 miles uh, it could travel. That means 11 miles away from you and 11 miles back. That's ridiculously good okay yeah now you mentioned before when we were talking before on the, the last version of the show that yeah. we were trying to thanks record. for bringing that up because <clears throat> yeah. we're re-recording it yeah yeah <laughs> this is the second take so the last take you you mentioned that you knew people who flew drones and then ran out of battery oh on so shoot. annoyingly that that you were watching a documentary and they totally yes. ran out of juice uh, BBC documentary recently. It was making of a making, making sort of some serious thing. And the producer was on. And they tried to do the dramatic music. And the producer saying, disastrously, we discovered we only had 10 minutes left of battery power. And I'm thinking, uh, this is not a moment of drama. 
You know what? Fire, you know what I'm thinking. Tr- it's a Hanukkah miracle. <laughs> I'm thinking, charge your batteries, uh, fire the drone crew, get a better one. Uh, I also, I there's uh, a really good uh, reality show. That's the wrong word for it. It's a property show, Grand Designs, uh, filmed in the UK. It's about the making of individual, you know, very personalised homes, and it famously has lots of aerial shots. And uh, the the main photographer on it actually quit the show because he was so fed up of how bad drone photography was. He left uh, the production company, started his own drone company and sold footage back to the show and now exclusively works providing drone footage because it's so much needed. And because he's a photographer, he's a cameraman and he now needs drone stuff, he does gorgeous, stabilised things. And we see it on every... It's ruined now. We see it everywhere. Fed up of the thing, really. But it looks great. So, if you're that crew, a separate Flymore kit is available, and it consists of two extra batteries, a multi-battery charging hub, a car charger, a battery-to-battery power bank adapter, and two pairs of propellers and a carrying bag. For the grand price of, are you ready? Yes. $319. Oh, that's impossible. I mean, uh, this production crew... uh, they lost, you know, they had everybody on site on a gorgeous location and they ran out of battery power for it. That's, that's practically negligent. You know, the cost of the uh, everybody else in there. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. 319. And sorry, how much did you say the whole kit costs? Right. So there are two different drones we've been talking about here. The DJI Mavic Pro kit, Mavic 2 Pro kit, let me say, includes the drone battery controller charger and four pairs of propellers is $1,450. Okay. The Mavic 2 Zoom version costs 1250 Okay. And then you add in the 319 because you would. So that's... Because you need more okay. batteries, yeah. Well, uh, do they have them in blue? No. Okay. Do you, do you, do you need just, blue? It's just, you know, fashion, obviously. I mean, if... if uh, they're they're sort of this uh, space oh, gray okay. color, space gray, a very Apple-y kind of color. I want these things to go with my iPhone. Yeah. That's that's really what I want. So a rose gold version. They're sort of a yeah. matte gray. Yeah. Well, a rose gold would be interesting, but I bet it would catch the light. <laughs> okay. I like the idea of it just ominously flying. Well, I suppose you'd hear it, wouldn't you, before you saw the the flash of light. Uh, again, I think as with the cameras, do we know are these actually out yet uh, or announced? These were just announced. These were launched on Thursday, and our own Neil Hughes was in oh, attendance right. for the launch. So, you're expecting a few uh, uh, versions of this to be in Santa's uh, sleigh for various people who've been very, very good. I'm not sure. I don't know if I, 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 I don't know that you've been that good, William. I'm, I'm not All sure. Right. We well, can I may do have that. made certain recent mistakes <laughs> but you've got to give me the idea it's a great idea having santa delivering them whilst filming himself with them wouldn't that just be perfect wouldn't that make up for all sorts of I don't know. things no okay i don't know but the the thing here is they they had at their launch they had a pro photographer who's talking about how he could replace a thirty-five thousand dollar helicopter uh you know trip and and a cinema camera with this 1250 drone wow based on the kinds of shots that they can get out of uh, I If you'd said this to me a week ago, I would have thought that helicopters have a greater endurance. Uh, but I just saw uh, a making-of clip on YouTube about whichever Mission Impossible film it is when he was climbing up the, the tallest building and a lot of the shots from a helicopter. But it could only stay on site for about 20 minutes at a time. I think cause it was so heavily loaded down uh, with you know IMAX cameras and things. So that's, I mean, actually not as good 
as this drone stuff. So, yeah, I believe that now. And the difference really between the two models, the, the, the big difference between the two models, if you will, is that the uh, the Zoom model, of course, has the Zoom lens and the Mavic 2 Pro has the Hasselblad lens. Now, obviously, if you're a drone photographer, you get both and you use them both separately for different tasks. But that's that's kind of where they're going with this. How easy is it to swap lenses and things of that level? I, I think I think you don't. I think these, oh, these okay. come as right. they are. So at least you'll never do the wrong thing. You'll never pick up the wrong one, uh, hopefully. Okay. Yeah. Now, it's important to know. We, we asked our listeners, we asked you out there what kind of, of things you're involved with. Are you small business owners and so forth like that? And the reason we asked is because we wanted to make sure that we're talking about things that are relevant to your needs. And it's, it's, it's so important because the right hire can make a huge impact on your business. And that's why it's so important to find the right person. But where do you find that individual? You could try posting on job boards, but can you be sure the right person actually sees your job? Instead, find the person who will help you grow your business with LinkedIn. As the world's largest professional network, people go to LinkedIn every day to grow professionally and discover job opportunities, and 70% of the workforce is already there. LinkedIn Jobs matches people to your role based on more of who they really are, their skills, interests, and even how they open they are to new opportunities. And this way, your job gets seen by the right people. Most LinkedIn members haven't recently visited the top job boards, but 9 out of 10 members are open to new opportunities, so you can only reach them on LinkedIn. And that's why a new hire is made every 10 seconds using LinkedIn. And businesses rate LinkedIn 40% higher than job boards at delivering quality candidates. Hurry to linkedin.com slash Apple Insider and get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash Apple Insider to get $50 off your first job post. linkedin.com slash Apple Insider. Terms and conditions apply. I'm considering updating my LinkedIn profile to include the fact that I'm just spectacular at recording podcasts. What do you think? I think you should. I think absolutely you do that. Right. Uh, will you get one of those endorsements? Uh, requests and, and just click on that for me. Yeah. Would that be? I, I'll i click through as soon as I see it, William. Thanks. Absolutely. Thank you. you. Got it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Apple has filed a new patent and it's hinting at non-invasive glucose monitoring technology for the Apple Watch. Now, this application was published on Thursday and it offers clues into where they're going for the rumored non-invasive glucose monitoring solution. Uh, diabetes detecting technology is considered to be a holy grail of medical science. And what they're trying to do is really interesting. So we've currently got in the Apple Watch technology to monitor heart rate by shining light through the skin and then seeing the the pulse come back in through the other side of it, right? Yes. And they've got a couple of different lights and, and receiving that light is what's going on there. So here the patent is talking about the same kind of idea using light generated and seeing how much of that light is absorbed and what it does to the amount of energy that can be absorbed, and then receiving that back and measuring that as, as the amount of glucose in, in the substance, for example, in the blood. And there's a lot that's going on there that makes it difficult to do, right? A sample might contain multiple substances or spectral artifacts, some of which can obscure or otherwise degrade detection of the substance you're actually interested in. It might also not be equally distributed through your bloodstream. So if you were trying to measure glucose, your glucose might not be equally going through all of your blood. So the measuring could be fraught that way. Apple's invention tries to make this a little bit better. They've, they've got an apparatus that incorporates specialized light emitters, filters, beam splitters, shortwave length infrared detectors, and other components to try and compensate for these potential inaccuracies. And using all of these different things together is supposed to overcome that a little bit to determine the concentration of the, the substance being measured. I think this is a huge deal. I really do. I think there's a lot of need 
for addressing blood sugar, especially not just for, for people who have diabetes, but also for people who have pre-diabetes or are undiagnosed. For some reason, I'm just remembering what it was like. I used to work on computer magazine. I mean, I'm a writer, but I started in computer magazines uh, back in the 90s, I suppose it would have been. And every month, uh, there'd be a new computer, and it was just you know exactly the same as the other one, and you ran Excel on it at most. And now you look forward to now, and it just this is magical, isn't it? Really? That's a very apple word, isn't it? But it seems right for this, that this is conceivable and patentable is just astounding to me. Well, so certainly this is a big deal. So right, last year we talked about Tim Cook who was wearing a continuous monitored glucose meter for about a month and then having that data go into his Apple Watch. And it turned out he was using a Dexcom model. Well, the Dexcom models now are, are publicly available to pair with Bluetooth and pair with the Apple Watch and bring the readings in. Those, that's kind of a big deal. Because what you want to be able to do is give people information that's actionable. You want to be able to measure the change and, and help people make good decisions based on it. Do I need blood sugar? Do I need something to, to bring my sugar levels up? Do I have too much? You know, where, where am I at, right? And the idea that the watch could do it for you is a huge, huge thing, especially in terms of not just people who have diabetes, but people who need to start watching and measuring their their change and taking smart actions based on it. Do I really need that sugary drink? Do I really need that piece of cake? You know, you, for example, should lay off your heavily sweetened tea. Uh, No, actually, that's not where my sugar goes. No sugar in tea. It's just wrong. But I do drink a lot of uh, fizzy drinks and things. And uh, I'm there's going to be a whole band of people who don't know that they're right on the cusp and this will stop them going into it. That's uh, you're talking about the the business of samples being hard. Um, uh, The fact that, you know, there can be uh, interference that things are hard to measure. It might not all be in the same spot. It seems to me that the back of the Apple watch is a very small uh, surface to be trying to measure all of these things at once. Is that, well, presumably that's what this pattern is trying to fix. Yeah. Is it definitely for the watch then? Uh, we don't know, but we believe so. So this just came out this week. In a couple of weeks' time, presumably, there's going to be a new Apple Watch, um, and it will definitely feature these, clearly. No? No. No. There's going to be a new Apple Watch. You can fairly safely say that. Is it going to feature this technology? Not not certain at all. No. We don't know. But they've got weeks. I mean, this is a patent application. It's not even been granted. Okay. We have no idea how much implementation work has actually been accomplished on this, much less that it's actually ready to be productized. Okay, but still, they've got at least 10 days, haven't they, to you know get their act together and include this. I mean, what else is Apple? So that's, that's William's message to Apple is get cracking. Yeah, okay. Let me, let me explain why this is important, okay? In 2015, 30.3 million Americans had diabetes. That's 9.4% of the population. So if, if you look and say one out of every 10 people you meet has diabetes, that's a big deal. Yes. Right? Approximately 1.25 million American children and adults have type 1 diabetes. That's sorry. That's just right. That's really quite hard to process that kind of number. Okay. I mean, I, I hear rates going up here at UK Health. There have been reports recently of, you know, 70% rises over recent years. Uh, but it's when you put actual numbers on it that I suddenly think that's overwhelming. 
Yeah, that's that's for 2015. Now, presume that that it's only increasing. Now, that that 2015 data is the latest data that I can pull from the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. But the I, I think this is staggering. I think that's a lot of people that you can really help. And all you have to do is slap an Apple Watch on them and put a Dexcom on them and, and you can help people change and improve their lives. Yes. No, never mind all the people that aren't diagnosed or are pre-diabetes, pre-diabetic. Yeah. Now, of course, it's obviously, I mean, it's an Apple patent. We're talking about an Apple Watch and it's the obvious place for them to put it. But, you know, there are people who don't have Apple Watches. And one imagines... Uh, I sound cynical saying this um, as if Apple is only doing it for sales and I genuinely think they're trying to do good with this there are cheaper things they could do to increase sales um, it's still going to be the fact that there are no alternatives uh, I don't see Android adding it later or, or maybe, okay. maybe it's All the right, start hold on. So, so this is not the first wrist worn blood sugar monitor but it's the first one that could be implemented really well right Previously, previously, people were doing this. So there was a smartwatch a few years ago called Pebble. Oh, yes. Pebble, yeah. And Pebble, which was founded by uh, Eric Mijakovsky. So so Eric made the, the Pebble quite open. Pebble worked on Android. Pebble worked with iOS. Pebble, Pebble had its own SDK. And it also had its own hardware development kit. And so people were able to talk to the Pebble device. And there were people that had their Dexcom monitoring systems that had it sharing the data to Pebble and had custom watch faces that could then read the information and see it on the wrist. I really fancy it. It was all very – Sorry. It was very hacked together. You want a Pebble? I'll give you a Pebble. I got a Pebble. Yeah, I did fancy a Pebble past tense, and I never quite got around to getting one. And do you know, I think I, I won't now. I'm not sure why. He said looking at his Apple Watch. Mm. Pebble – so Apple Watch – is only now really doing the things that Pebble did for me. One of the things that Pebble was brilliant at when it went down was the timeline for all of your day's events and notifications. That that if you um, scrolled with it, it showed you what was coming up next marvelously. And only with the Siri watch face are we really seeing that on Apple Watch. Well, there was the time travel aspects, uh, which yeah, I never man. used, and that's going away. Nope. Okay. No. Nope. Not, not, not the, the same. same thing at all. No, Pebble did this really smartly. It was very nice. And every once in a while, you find these things that were really good that go away, and they sometimes live on and get reinvented again into other products. For example, WebOS. WebOS was a really nice phone. Oh. And you know that was done by John Rubenstein, who took over Palm and, and made the, the Palm WebOS-based phones. WebOS is gone. It lives on barely as the TV system powering LG TVs. Barely. The the OS was great, and the, the the whole cards interface for for switching through applications lives on in iOS a little bit. Okay, I don't even so know hearing about web sometimes, OS, but, but sometimes oh, go a good back. idea so stays. Jo John Rubenstein was originally uh, head of hardware engineering at Apple, and he left Apple and then went to Palm, and this royally ticked off Steve Jobs, who thought for sure that John could have been the next CEO to replace him. Didn't happen. Didn't work out. And John did, you know, John did Palm, and that was one of the things that that Steve felt betrayed by. How dare you go and leave us and then create a competing phone, right? Yeah. So, I, I am I am hopeful that Apple does follow through in implementing this system and that it works because it it really has huge benefits. One point two five million yes. people diagnosed with type one diabetes. 
one in 10 people, basically. It's an unimaginable number. My mind's slightly on other non, other failed CEOs of Apple because uh, Scott Forstall used to be uh, in the running apparently for it. So that's two of them. I wonder who else didn't run Apple. Well, there's John Scully, but that's that's more critical well, comment. Well, never mind. Come yeah. on, come on. Sorry. Let's keep going. But yes, okay. So, so great. Uh, any possible idea of a timescale for this? You're saying not uh, mid-September, but so. I, I'm being very conservative in that. We, we've heard about this rumor for, it feels like, almost two years. Now we're finally seeing the patent application. I, I feel like a conservative approach is that it's going to be at least another year, right. maybe two. Do I, they want to do it? Yeah, absolutely. Is it something that I, – I think this is a patent where they're actually working on implementing it and it's going to come to fruition as opposed to patents where they make claims just to go ahead and have more patents. Oh, right, because they do do that a lot. Yes, things we never well, ever see. The way that the the patent office works is that you do that because if you invent it and and you've recorded that you've invented, if someone else does it, they're infringing on your patent and you can go after them for it for infringement fees. You know, they have to license it from you. So there's always that. It's it's reasonable to try and build a war test. The other thing is to throw in as many claims as you can, patent the kitchen sink, so that if some of your claims are invalidated, the rest of the patent will still stand. So you don't just patent that you're making this one thing and here's one method of doing it. You patent all the other ways of doing the same thing. Nice. So that if your beam splitting patent is invalidated, then your refraction and diffraction one is validated. Yeah, except, I mean, obviously, you know, we all learn about patent trials, but I was at the UK launch of the first PowerBook that had uh, a trackpad on it. I can't remember which model it was, uh, but they made a big thing of saying this is patented. Nobody's having this. And now everybody has it. There isn't a single notebook in the world that does anything else. But Well, and you could... You could say the same thing about multi-touch, right? For the first year of Android, Android couldn't have multi-touch, right. but Apple did because Apple had patented it. And and these things all get sorted out. There's there's the notion that you have to be able to license these things out. And at some point, you if you don't, you end up in patent wars where everyone's got a gun pointed at each other's head and or lawyers pointed at each other's head and, and nothing gets made. So eventually these things get licensed out or sorted out or – there's, there's, um, oh, I'm it's like a to, technology to version of um, mutually assured, well, non-destruction. Um, well, so there's, there's, there's what's called FRAND or fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory terms, so that you can have patents licensed out under those those fair terms to competing organizations, so that everyone gets to to use the technology and not be limited and held back. Well, I mean, I do think it's a good thing that all notebooks have this. I just, uh, I, it had seemed to me that the patent system wasn't a particularly good defense or uh, weapon against uh, things being taken away from you. So that, um, well, it, it mixed because it's a worldwide system. Right. I do also remember them explaining at that launch that the technology was based on the uh, the controls used in lifts that detect your finger when you press on a certain type of heat-sensitive button. So there you go. That's a useless piece of information that has no bearing on anything. But There we go. Yeah. Speaking, speaking of, so when it comes to email marketing, there's so much more that goes into creating smart and effective campaigns than what beats the eye. 
That's why Campaign Monitor created an easy-to-use email marketing platform complete with simple drag-and-drop email editor and award-winning 24-7 customer service. Campaign Monitor gives you everything you need to run beautifully designed professional email marketing campaigns to grow your business. With their gallery of beautiful, professionally designed email templates, all of which look amazing on every device, you're bound to find something that will make your brand pop. And since Campaign Monitor uses detailed lists and smart segments, your messages instantly drive more engagement. No wonder it's used by more than 250,000 businesses worldwide, and its rate is highest in customer satisfaction amongst major email marketing software vendors. To start building smart and beautiful email newsletters today, try Campaign Monitor for free at campaignmonitor.com. Again, that's campaignmonitor.com. Now, I got to ask you, William. Yes. Why am I suddenly wary? Okay, ask away. I I know I'm being risky asking you for financial advice, but (laughs) would you say that you think we should buy Apple stock or sell Apple stock? Uh, and, and go ahead, tell us if you have any holdings in Apple first. Uh, I don't, actually. I don't think I'm in that kind of financial league. But if I were, um, oh, I so wish I'd bought years ago. I would. I'm. Would you buy now as high as prices it is? I mean, they're about 225 or so, right? Uh, the only reason I'm hesitating is I feel that there's a trick in this question. But yes, I would. I I would never trick you. Why would you say such a thing? I can't imagine. I, okay. to, to be really clear, I hold some Apple stock. Not a whole lot, some, but I'm also not telling you what to do with it. So you're saying you would buy, even at the the price that it is now. Yes, come on, give me the trick. Why am I wrong? Am I wrong in some way? You're not wrong. Okay. First of all, you're not wrong. Good. Second of all, there's an analyst who has dropped Apple to a sell rating, arguing that the iPhone X's popularity is going to negatively impact the upgrade cycle. No, sorry, I... The, the, no? Go, go on, go on. I genuinely... Uh, okay, I didn't miss here. You did say that because it's popular... Uh, we should sell. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, okay. Um, is there any logic behind this? I'm struggling to imagine there is, but... The iPhone is too popular. We got to get out of Apple. Okay. It's too good. Too many people like it. And buy Windows Phone. I get it Oh, dear now. God. Okay. No, no. Actually, Windows Phone, pour one out for Windows Phone because Windows Phone had a lot going for it. The The, the thing about Windows Phone that was bad was their app store and their, their lack of success in getting app developers on board. And then, of course, shooting themselves in the foot and kicking out a bunch of apps because they didn't upgrade to the uh, correct age ratings, I believe it was. Right. Okay. But apart from They that. implemented age ratings after the fact. And instead of allowing developers just chick a switch to, to display the correct rating, they required new builds recompiled and developers like there's no users why are we bothering forget it and so all of the apps in the app store went away immediately ouch they killed their own platform by this and it was a nice phone there was a lot to like about it okay um i used one once and i wasn't particularly taken with it had live tiles on the front that updated you could do things really quickly that you had to do through several taps on android or ios uh, so much so that they even used to have competitions around it. Ben Rudolph, who's a friend of mine over at Microsoft, pioneered the idea of having speed competitions for doing certain tasks on iOS or Windows Phone. And if you uh, if you beat Windows Phone, they would give you prizes, but pretty much everyone lost because the live <laughs> tiles updated automatically and it just worked. Okay. It was really nice. So, I, I, so Windows Phone was good. But iPhone 10 is too popular. It's too well-received. It's too successful. And because it's so successful... It has brought forward demand. Therefore, the upgrade cycle will be down. And therefore, if we a down upgrade cycle, people should sell Apple. Oh, oh, okay. I just, I was thinking this is Apple is doomed nonsense again. But no, 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 no. This is, uh, 
people who might ordinarily have bought the iPhone 11 or whatever it becomes called uh, were attempted early into the 10 and so won't be replacing for a while. Well, okay, but what about uh, I have an iPhone 6? I Surely I'm well out of the upgrade cycle. I should. I'm, I'm not going to be put off going to the next one because the 10 Even- is popular. Even if one of the 2018 phones that we're about to see sometime next month, Crystal Ball says September 12th, yeah. is lower cost. Even if the, the rumored 6.1-inch LCD phone is a lower cost phone, yeah. this analyst predicts that there's sort of an air pocket that won't be offset by the popularity of these phones, that that so many people upgraded to the 10 that even if you need to upgrade from your 6, you don't matter. Okay, I feel – You don't offset that. Okay, it's just little me. Everybody else has clearly moved on. Already, is there any sort of yeah. number logic to this? Um, well, so here's here's the thing: we don't know how many of which phone they sold. Right? They were selling iPhone six in some regions. They were selling iPhone sevens and eights and tens. And while we know for a fact is that they sold forty one point three million phones in the third quarter alone, and that the ten was the most popular iPhone during third quarter. Okay. Okay. So, so we know that. And and so did they sell a lot of iPhone 10s? Yeah, they sold a lot of iPhone 10s. No, I still contrast this. Contrast this with the advice from December, a year ago. You know, basically nine months ago or more or less, where they said iPhone 10 isn't going to sell at all. <laughs> you sell none of them, we- right? Wasn't that the big advice? People, was, no one wants that Face ID. They're really expensive. No one wants to buy a thousand dollar phone. It's just not going to happen. Well, it turns out, you know what? It happened. So, what is the point of analysts then? I I still think we ought to try and get a couple analysts in a room and watch them as they watch the keynote. <laughs> okay. okay, sorry. I think it'd be entertaining. I have a screwy idea of entertainment, William. I think it'd be fun to get analysts in the room and make them watch the keynote and record their reactions. Yes, except even as I laughed at that, a kind of a second laugh came in on its heels because I thought uh, they would like that because that will be billable hours uh, for them and probably quite a lot. Um it could still be worth it. You're right, though. <laughs> okay. Get every analyst in together. No. Okay. Still feeling it could go either way and cost a lot of money to do it. But you're right. You should do it. Let us know how it goes. Okay. Will do. I, I don't know. I think I think it'd be funny because, you know, clearly they got to know when they're wrong, don't they? Well, I want to see someone's face fall. I want to see their their skin go ashen as as they take in what's being announced. I just I'm hearing there was yeah, but coming out of everything. Yeah, so they've sold 41 million, but they didn't sell 50 million, did they? And anyway, Android's better. That's the kind of thing I'm hearing rather than any one of these analysts saying I may have been mistaken. <sighs> Oh, no, there's a great right. Paul Reiser line, isn't there? Uh, the, this may not be the most right I've ever been, was as far as his character would go to admitting he was wrong. And I quite, I could, I could go for that. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of Android, we know that Android tracks you, especially when you're, you're not trying to tell it not to, right? Yes. We, we've seen that. We've, there, there are 10 different ways that Android systems try and track you. It's nuts. We published an article about it. I'll link it in the show notes. I keep I used the Android handset. I kind of liked it, but I've gone ahead and updated my iPhone six to iOS twelve, and I like that too. I think I'm going to stay with the iPhone. You're on the beta for iPhone. Oh, I am. On I updated to beta nine. Yeah, iPhone six beta nine of iOS twelve, and it did wonders for my phone. It really made it fast. 
any chance it's fixed the stuttering audio problem on Apple Music and particularly podcasts? Uh, do you even know about that? I haven't encountered that listening on Apple Podcasts and iOS 11. Okay. Well, I get it regularly and you, know, you look into it because it's a problem and apparently many people do, but not so many that Apple's actually done anything about it. So I was kind well, of hoping it would be fixed. Yeah, but I'm tempted to try. I understand. I, I, I think that is an option to see if it's fixed. The other thing I'd recommend is that people try Overcast. Yeah, Overcast and Downcast, all the podcast apps with depressing names. Yes. Or isn't there a, I'm, a cheery one? I'm aware that's how you feel about it, but Overcast is is definitely a well-liked application, and I, I do like it as well. I think we could certainly recommend it safely to our listeners. I like that it works with CarPlay and was one of the first CarPlay apps that was available from people besides Apple. The um, The interesting thing, and I have to address this for our listeners, is that I know we've gotten some requests from from you about using Overcast's capability to have chapter markers in podcasts, and I've looked into doing it. We've done it in the past a couple of times uh, using an application called Podcast Chapters by a fellow named Thomas, wonderful application, and we've also looked at using Forecast to do it, and it's just been difficult to integrate into the workflow for production of the podcast, so... I've heard you. I understand that it's desirable. And when I can make it fit the workflow really smoothly, then we'll do it every time. But uh, right now, it's still a little bit of a difficulty to try and make sure that it works well and, and try and integrate into the release of the podcast well. Whereas so. you can so easily fit in a complete re-recording when necessary. Yes, I'm just never going to be unmortified about that. Thank you for your patience. Well, fitting in the uh, the complete second take means even less time for production. So there we go. Okay. Tell me about what email client you use, William. Oh, I will. And it'll be a long list, actually, because I'm using loads of them. But I know why you're saying it this time. It's because Airmail, which I rate so highly in most ways, have had a bit of a problem this week, haven't they, with security things. Now, I, I'm actually, by coincidence, uh, reviewing the latest version of that. And the latest version of Airmail changed because they fixed the security thing. But I think you actually understand what the security issues were, don't you? Much more than I, I, I do. Now, the... The thing about Airmail is that it's it's a nice little application. I, I kind of like it. I've been using others too. It just occurs to me, I don't even have your email address, William. Do you know that? Okay. Well, I should give it to you right now on the air. <laughs> Great. And we can then have people exercise this vulnerability and see if you're still vulnerable. <laughs> okay. Before we do that, before we get to that, I'm going to explain there are three different vulnerabilities in Airmail. The first involves the way that Airmail 3 handles URL requests. Now, suppose I'm sitting here using my Airmail 3 client, and I'm checking email and, and so forth, and I get an email from William. William is crafty. Oh, yes. Well, William is clever, and William is malicious. Okay, harsh, but fair. I'd say accurate, wouldn't you? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Still unkind, but accurate. No, it's not unkind if it's accurate, is it? All right. So, William is rubbing his hands together there in the background, and he's crafting an email that consists of a link containing a URL request, one that uses the send mail function of the client in such a way that what happens is it sends an email back without my knowledge if I click on it. So, I read an email, I see an innocuous looking URL, I click on it, and the way that William's done this causes an email to be sent without my knowledge. That's already a bad idea. 
Now, William is a little sneakier than that. William, as a part of the same message, embeds code that makes the client attach files to this outbound email that I didn't know anything about. And so the second vulnerability allows him to put in specific documents from the user account database, such as previously received or sent emails, attachments, and covertly include them in the outbound message. So William is in my email, and he's got my files. I really should add the, all I'm these not, skills to my LinkedIn profile. That's what I should do. I'm I I'm not in. You want an endorsement for that? <laughs> yes, please. You so. you want an endorsement for that? Never mind. So that's the second vulnerability. Now the second vulnerability requires the name of the file, but Airmail three stores its data in a really open way within SQLite, and so people can pretty much figure out what those file paths are and what the names are. It's not hard. Now the third vulnerability. The third vulnerability is an incomplete blacklist of HTML frame owner elements, which allows WebKit frame instances to be opened through the email. And these aren't forbidden by the client, so they can be used to bypass an HTML filter to avoid HTML plugins being classed as malicious. So you can use 12 different kinds of plugins to request attachments. Obviously, any of these vulnerabilities require the user to click on a link. There's a fourth vulnerability that allows for attacks to take place just by opening the email without even clicking on its contents. So Airmail's event handler navigation filter can be bypassed, allowing an embedded HTML element to open automatically without my intervention. Now, that fourth way isn't really reliable. It's about 50% success rate, but it does it open up the possibility. So William, over there, being malicious, has compromised my email, my files, my browser, my plugins, my file... It just... I don't, I don't know, man. World's on fire. Burn it all down. I'm nothing if not thorough. Give me that. Okay. But uh, actually, I mean, these things have all been fixed, haven't they, or at all? Uh, there is a fixed version, a patched version that developers have put out. I mean, I don't know what they kind of fixed in the time. I understand they had a few days uh, to do this, but they can't have done... Um, uh, you mentioned the SQL uh, the database structure. So, they won't have changed that. Here, here's here's what I think they've done. Now, they, they issued two separate updates to my beta client yesterday. And they both were security-style updates. What and, and one of them specifically said about URL handling. What I think they've done is, first of all, they, they must have done something to address the fourth vulnerability. The fourth vulnerability is the one that allowed things to happen without user interaction. And the other... <clears throat> probably addressed the URL handling and URL requests that allowed the email to be sent back without the user's knowledge. That's that's my suspicion here, is that by working on those two vulnerabilities, they pretty much head off the rest. Okay, that makes sense. I'm sure it wasn't an easy job to do, but it sounds done. So, phew. Yeah, big sigh of relief there, huh? Yes, I just suddenly thought, I mean, we, obviously this is in Airmail, uh, and I do think Airmail is the best of the alternatives to Apple Mail. But what about uh, other ones? Like there's one called Dispatch that did a lot of actions, hasn't been updated in a long time. I think, are, 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 is that, are others vulnerable? I don't know that we know that. Well, I think what we can say safely is that it's advisable to use software that is regularly maintained, yes. first of all. Yeah. Second of all, mail clients specifically represent a potential vulnerability because you're allowing your mail to be accessed by a piece of software that has access to your user account credentials. So they've got your logins and they see all of your email traffic coming and going. So if there was a malicious email client, for example, they have all your traffic. They have your account. This is why I, I like using 
the uh, the web clients were available because I feel like there I'm talking directly to the server. Now it's possible that there's all sorts of man in the middle there as well, but use a use a regularly maintained updated client, and if you can use one that's from the provider of that mail account, so that you're you're using things that you can place somewhat more trust in. Mail is difficult. Mail is a difficult vulnerability problem because no one encrypts their email properly. No one does PGP or GPG. Uh, and it's difficult to do. You know, there there are attempts to try and make mail clients more secure, but it's it's a difficult thing. You know, if you, if you want to use OS X's mail client built in, that Mac OS's mail client, that's reasonably safe. If you want to use Google's because you have a Gmail account, that's reasonably safe. Um, it's 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 difficult. And this is why you don't have my email address. I'm not giving it to you. You know, you know all of this stuff. No, forget it. Are you accusing me of being clever, sir? A little bit, kind of throwing it back at you, tiny bit. Obviously, yeah. Um, I'm hearing lawyers suddenly in your voice. Anyway, yes. Eat your finger sandwiches, sir. I will sip, <laughs> sip a cup of my tea. <clears throat> well, I do that. Imagine learning new recipes from Gordon Ramsay or photography tips from Annie Leibovitz. You can with Masterclass. Masterclass offers online classes taught by the best in the world, and each class is shot with cinematic production quality and offers on-demand lessons loaded with exclusive content you find only on Masterclass. You can choose from classes taught by over 35 masters, including Malcolm Gladwell on writing, Ron Howard on directing, astronaut Chris Hadfield on space exploration, and many more. Plus, new classes are always being added. Whether you're pursuing your passion or developing your career, you'll find a Masterclass for you. Masterclass has even been featured by the New York Times, Vanity Fair, and ESPN. And Apple Insider listeners can unlock access to every Masterclass for a year right now at masterclass.com slash appleinsider. You'll gain unlimited access to over 35 world-class masters, all for one surprisingly low annual price. That's masterclass.com slash appleinsider for unlimited access to Masterclass. Learn from the best of the world at masterclass.com slash appleinsider. Now, I've personally been taking classes by Steve Martin, Judd Apatow, and Ron Howard, and I like them a lot. These are, these are really well-done classes. I must get on that myself. Um, Aaron Sorkin does a screenwriting one, doesn't it? Can you imagine having Aaron Sorkin mentoring you through screenwriting? I mean, you couldn't possibly get that in real life. You're missing out. Mm. You really are. All right. <clears throat> well, William, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, I am at uh, W Gallagher, so W-G-A-L-L-A-G-H-E-R. Um, that's it, really. I usually hover around there, but also, obviously, on Apple Insider every day. Fantastic. Well, if William spells his name correctly a second time in a row, we will be back next week with more Apple Insider podcast. I'm at VMarks on Twitter, and you can find me at AppleInsider.com. Please email us at news at AppleInsider.com with comments about the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, if you have things you'd like us to do, including, yes, you can tell us about podcast chapters. We'll hear that. Um, we like having you as listeners. We hope to see you back next week. <laughs>